woefully short of Psalm 27.4. I feel that, Lord, having soaked myself in that text all week, Lord, I can sense how, how deficient I am. And I ask that you would change me and that you would use this message anointed and, and preached through the power of the Holy Spirit to change our body. Bless us tonight, Lord. Let, let fire from heaven fall down and bless us as we press into the word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I invite you to turn uh, in, in your copy of God's word to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27. And we've just sung about it. Now we're going to read it. <clears throat> I want to read the first eight verses of Psalm chapter 27, the first eight verses. You can find that on page 460 if you're using a pew Bible, 460. Let's read together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple." For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. This is the word of the Lord. I love missionary, love missionary biography because it reminds me of what life is all about. I don't know if you've had a chance to read uh, missionary biography, but if you haven't, I encourage you to do so. Um, I love it because it preaches truth to me. Um, missionary biography just has a way of, it, it teaches me so much. It teaches me about God, sin, uh, salvation, suffering, all these great things. Uh, but a common thread that I've seen running through all these great men and women who have gone before us as missionaries um, is, is that these men have laid down their lives for the gospel, and yet in the midst of suffering and pain, they trust the Lord. This is a common thread. Um, they'll tell you if you ask them that in their hour of greatest trial, they find comfort and consolation from the Lord. They'll tell you that in great suffering on earth, there is great support that comes down from heaven. This is, the, this is, this is their common testimony. Samuel Rutherford, uh, he said this. He said, the great king keeps his finest wine in the cellar of affliction. He does not bring it out to serve with chips on a Sunday afternoon. He keeps it for extremities. And people who continue to rejoice in God throughout the duration of their life, in the midst of suffering, they will prove over and over and over again that God is their great source of joy, not things and possessions. 
as precious as they may be, including family and children. There's a man named Paul Brand, and Paul Brand was a missionary, a medical missionary to India. And he tells a story in Christianity Today of his mother who was a missionary. And uh, this woman symbolizes a life devoted to suffering for the glory of God. This is, listen to what he had to say about his mother. My mother, for her, pain was a frequent companion, as was sacrifice. I say it kindly and in love, but in old age, mother had little of physical beauty left in her. The rugged conditions combined with a crippling falls and her battles with typhoid fever, dysentery, and malaria had made her a thin, hunched-over old woman. Years of exposure to wind and sun had toughened her facial skin into leather and furrowed it with wrinkles as deep and extensive as I have ever seen on a human face. Mother knew that as well as anyone for the last 20 years of her life, she refused to keep a mirror in her house. And I don't think that was because of vanity. 20 years of ministry without a mirror why i love these missionaries they just don't care they don't care about these things but friends here's the question how do you get there how do you become a person like that i think the answer is in psalm chapter 27 verse 4 and that's the focus of my message this evening Um, it's an intriguing verse because you would not expect this from david given the context of verses 1 through 3 in fact some people would say and because of verses 1 through 3, that David's desire in verse 4 is naive. It's unrealistic. I mean, think about it. Spending time meditating on God's beauty and making it the one thing to which everything else is inferior seems almost unimaginable when your life is falling apart. Does anybody else feel that tension, what I'm saying here? It's... It's, it's thinking about the beauty of God in the midst of pain, in the midst of trial. Is that your default mode when life's going really bad, is to think about the beauty of the Lord? Is that what you do? Well, this is what David is recommending, and it's why some people really struggle with this verse and think it's just naive. David is asserting that when life is at its worst, Being captivated by God is the most reasonable thing you can do. And here's the perplexing question. In the midst of all that, how could David possibly find the motivation to spend time meditating on God's beauty? What what made him like that? How can you experience pleasure in God in the midst of suffering? Again, thinking about Dr. Brand and his mother, This is what Dr. Brand says. He says, I have come to see that pain and pleasure come to us, not as opposites, but as Siamese twins, strangely joined and intertwined. Nearly all of my memories of acute happiness, in fact, involve some element of pain or struggle. And that's exactly what's happening to David in verses 1 through 4. Look at at verses 1 through 3 again. Focus on the mingling of pain and pleasure. Listen to this. One through three, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when evildoers attack me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes? It is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. 
And the fact is, I'm sure of this, that some of you have come here tonight and you are experiencing the mingling of pain and pleasure. You're experiencing the intertwining of those realities and it's painful and it's hard and it's difficult. Perhaps it's because of the consequences of your sin or the consequences of somebody else's sin. Or maybe it's just a result of living in a sin-cursed world where you feel the struggle and the pain of life. You're tired. You're, you're worn out. You're discouraged and empty. You live in a world where confusion seems to be the norm and clarity is hard to find. You ever felt like that? And if that's you, the question is, what can you do about it? Because sometimes you're just broken. You, you need God to intervene on your behalf. It's like you need something to, to pierce through the darkness because every, every day it's like there's no sun. It's clouds. It's rain. It's gloomy. It's dark. And you want something to pierce through that. What you need is verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And friend, I pray that if that's you this evening, I pray that God, the sovereign Lord, would light you tonight. That you will be lit by the illuminating power of his transforming grace. And if you're saved and you're in a season of darkness and despair, you need a transformed perspective. So that you can say with David in verse 3, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. See, David was confident. That's where he was. David was in a state of confidence. He was a man who had gained confidence. And the question is, how do you gain this kind of confidence? Well, his answer is in verse 4. You see, one of the things that this text does that I love is it asks and answers some really vital questions. The fact is, deep down, all of us have lots of questions um, and, and really, some of those questions only God has the answer to. And today, among some of the most important and fundamental questions is this. Can I get to know God? And if so, where can I find him? See, th- these are the types of existential questions that really matter. People ask them. And if you bother to read any of the Psalms at all, you'll find that these kind of questions are asked all the time by the psalmist. And when they arise in your heart in one situation or another, usually because your back is pressed up against a wall, someone in the Psalms has already asked that question and has already answered it. And here in Psalm 27, we have some questions and answers to life's most important issues. So tonight, here's what I want to do. I want to ask three questions from Psalm 27.4. Here we go. First, where can I find God? Number two. What should I do when I find him? And number three, when should I start looking for him? Number one, where can I find God? See, if you're going to find God, if you're going to know God, you have to know where he is. And David tells us where he can be found. Look at verse 4. It was the house of the Lord where David went to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, what does that mean? It means that he realized that the first step that he had to take if he was going to know God was to go to the place where God said he would make himself known. He needed to go to the place where God said he would reveal himself. That seems to be a pretty obvious thought, doesn't it? 
And yet it's something that, that multitudes of people just seem not to be able to understand or ignore. God said in verse 8, look at verse 8, seek my face. But we need to go where we can actually see God's face, where we can seek him, where he has made himself known. Now, in those days, of course, this was in a particular location. It was in the tabernacle. It was in the temple where the people of God would go to meet with God and to experience his presence. In the great tabernacle of meeting. In fact, if you think about Exodus, you remember when Moses met with God, it says that he met with God face to face as a man would speak to his friend. And that's Exodus chapter 33. Now, Moses says this in Exodus 33. Now, Moses used to take the tent and he would pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, of course, we understand that this tent of meeting was just real, was really just a picture of something else. More, more specifically, it was a picture of someone else. Because Jesus points to himself and he calls himself the temple of God. Jesus says, you want to know the way, the truth, and the life, then you need to come to me. I am the temple. And, and in coming to me, you'll get to know God. You'll find God in coming to Jesus, which is why Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says the radiance of God's glory, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So to find God is not only to go into his house, it's not only to go into the temple, but specifically it means to ultimately find Christ. So let me ask you this question. Do you know God? Do you know God? Do, do, what about this? Do you want to find God? Then you must seek the Lord. That's simple. You must seek his presence. Now, the word presence in Hebrew is the word that is commonly translated for the word face. Literally, we are to seek his face, which is why verse 8 says, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Because the fact is, even though we're God's children, we're not always in his presence, are we? In one sense, we are always in his presence in that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. And he is committed to us. He is, he is covenanted to be with us. But there's a special presence of the Lord, isn't there? There's a special presence of the Lord that you have to seek in order to find and listen, it's that more special focused presence of the Lord that is in view here in Psalm 27. We are to seek the Lord. We are to seek his presence continually. And to do that, that means we have to get alone with God and get into the secret place and seek his face. Friends, if you desire that real, tangible, felt, conscious, trusted presence of God then you have to seek him. There are, there are times in our lives where we get into phases of, of, I don't know what it is, it's like neglect of God, and we just get so cold, and we get so distant from our relationship with God, it's almost as if, if there's nothing that can warm the heart. We, we, we become distant, we become estranged to God. And, and, and let me speak into your life for a moment. Some of you may have a habit of neglecting the Lord. 
neglecting his presence. In fact, you've, you've, you've kind of learned to live that way. It's become almost habit for you. And ironically, the thing is you acknowledge the fact that you rarely sense his presence. But friends, if you don't sense God's presence, that's not God's fault. It's yours. His face is hidden behind the curtain of your worldly ambitions. And for all of us, that's why we have to seek his presence continually. If we want to know God, if we want to enjoy that conscious presence of God regularly, we have to seek his face regularly. But what does that mean practically speaking? I think it means that we have to fight to regularly set our hearts and our minds on God. What does Paul say in Colossians? He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. That, that's a conscious choice to direct your heart and mind toward God. We, we cannot be mentally lazy. Mental laziness is the death of communion with God. And we need to repent of that, and we have to discipline our minds. And isn't it interesting to note, if you read the Psalms, what happens to the psalmist when he gets into the presence of God? Psalm 73 is probably the classic example. Life is chaotic. It's chaos. Everything seems to be falling apart. But when Asaph goes into the temple of the Lord and he gets in God's presence, his perspective is transformed, his mindset, everything begins to change, and he begins to see with clarity. And this is exactly what happens to David. See, David gets into the presence of God, everything becomes clearer to him. This passage is full of references to David's trust and his faith in God. And this is because when he spent time in God's presence, he didn't just sit there. David did some things. He did some things in God's presence. And what he did gave him fresh perspective and encouragement and faith and perseverance. And that leads us to the second question. When you find God, what should you do? What should you do when you find him? Well, again, verse 4b gives us the answer. You should do what David says. What does he say? You should gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Now, this word gaze, um, this word gaze, we don't use it a lot, but it means to behold. It means to perceive. Um, it's to experience. It's to discover something. But listen, how can, you, how can you perceive, how can you experience God's beauty unless you dwell? In the house of the Lord. And the word dwell simply means to sit. It means to remain. It means to stay somewhere. You camp out. You take up residence. You linger. And lingering in the presence of God, as we do this, we begin to discover the beauty of the Lord. But how do you discover the beauty of the Lord simply by lingering? Again, we have to ask another question. What, what happens how does, how does all that happen? Well, David tells us again in verse 4. He says, you discover the beauty of the Lord as you inquire in his temple. See how he's laying this out? Listen, you inquire in his temple. Now, the word inquire, what does that mean? It means to search. It means to seek or investigate. It means to inspect, to contemplate, to consider, to reflect, 
to meditate on him. You see what David is saying? He's saying, I want to spend all the days of my life seeking to understand the beauty of the Lord as I linger in his presence. Or, I want to remain in the Lord's presence all the days of my life so that I can investigate his beauty. Or, I want to spend all the days of my life thinking about God's perfections as I dwell in his presence. See see where David's going? This is, do you feel his passion and desire? It's ultimately one thing, and that's why he can say, one thing have I desired. David's after one thing. He wants to perpetually live in a state of contemplating God's perfections so that he can experience the beauty of the Lord. (laughs) There's a lot more to this text than meets the eye when you begin to think about it. This thought came to me as I was preparing this message this week in terms of an application for us. But we can talk about the fact that our prayer lives are weak and our hunger for God is not what it should be. But you know what? Maybe this is the problem. Maybe, maybe we're far too easily pleased, as C.S. Lewis said. But not only that, we're far too easily distracted. We can't keep our minds and hearts focused long enough in a state of reflection on the Lord to behold the beauty of the Lord. That's the problem. We can't perceive his beauty because we don't think or dwell or linger long enough in his presence to actually see his beauty. We're we're lazy. Instant gratification. So, so the result is of this is, is we go to something else that's easier to obtain and less satisfying. And when we do that, the consequences are really serious. I mean, it's no wonder that we struggle sometimes to get to church. Think about the relationship here. Why do we have a hard time sometimes getting motivated to go to church? Why do we have a hard time motivating ourselves to go to care group? Why is it that sometimes our Sunday evening prayer is small and lethargic? Why is it that only six or seven people attend the Sunday morning prayer time consistently? Why is this? I think this is it. Please don't misunderstand me here. Is that this is not motivation by guilt. Friends, this is addressing the heart of the matter. I, I, see, I want us to be corrected in light of the gospel. We, we have to see it's the beauty of the Lord that's our motivation. It is the gospel that is our motivation. It's, the, the issue is not that you didn't make it to the prayer meeting. The issue is that you've not seen the beauty of the gospel. You've not seen the beauty of the Lord. But friends, listen, small corporate prayer meetings are a result of a small heart. Why do we struggle to advance? I mean really advance the cause of missions. Are we giving till it hurts? Is anybody getting closer in our body to packing up and moving to a Muslim country for the sake of the gospel? Friends, small prayer meetings and poorly attended missions presentations are a surface problem. 
That's surface. Could it be that the root problem is that God is too much work for us? God is too hard. Could it be that that he's not instantly gratifying to our flesh? It's just too hard. And so over time, we begin to settle for instant gratification and God becomes boring to you. Henry Skugel, listen to this. This is heart searching. Henry Skugel was right, I think, when he said this. The soul is measured by its flights. Some low, some high. The heart is known by its delights and pleasures never lie. And so a small heart for missions and poorly attended prayer meetings and care groups are a result of a disengaged heart more than they are of a busy schedule. It's not finally because we're too busy. It's not because we're over-churched and mentally and physically exhausted that we fail to be with God's people. Sure, those things happen from time to time, and, and kids complicate the situation greatly. But friends, at some point, this primarily becomes an issue of the heart. And, and our heart problem is a result of a discipline problem. We, we cannot stay focused long enough in God's presence. We're lazy, we're spiritually lazy, we're undisciplined, we're unfocused. How long, how long do you linger in God's presence before you get tired? Does your heart burn in its love for the local church? Are you anxious to worship with the family of God? And how about God himself? Do you long to be with him? How much time do you pray on a daily basis? How engaged is that prayer? How deep do you search the scriptures? How often do you read them? How affected are you when you read them? How broken and earnest are you in your prayers? How passionate and hungry are you for the presence of God? Friends, I fear that if, if we don't see the beauty of the Lord, it's because we're not lingering in his presence. We're not dwelling in His presence. We're not spending time meditating on the perfections and the loveliness of the Lord. Otherwise, that would be our motivation and we would be here. Because God would become so great to you that you can't afford to miss an opportunity to be in His presence. Oh, friends, instead what happens is we settle and we become apathetic. Apathetic. Those two terms don't even go together. Apathetic and Christian. That's an oxymoron. If if you're apathetic, you're not spending time in the presence of the Lord because apathy is impossible in the presence of the Son of God. You cannot be apathetic in the presence of Jesus Christ. His indescribable beauty compels a response. It compels either passionate love or hatred. But this middle of the road, straddle the fence, you do your thing and I'll do mine indifference, dies when Jesus draws near. Look, love, love him or despise him, but friends, it is time that we abandon the notion that, that when Jesus draws near, that he can somehow just be tolerated. See, C.S. See, Lewis was right. When he said, Christianity, if it is false, it is of no importance. But if it is true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. That means the only way to respond to Jesus Christ is either in passionate devotion 
or hatred. Think about that. There is no room here for a response that's less than than extreme. And Christ wants all of us. He wants all of us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not part of the time, not mildly or half-heartedly. No, just as Christ gave his everything, our everything is demanded in return. It's meant to be radical. It's meant to be fanatic and obsessive and unreserved. It's a love that shouts from the rooftops, not to the God who's just all right, but to the God who's everything. But see, sadly, what happens is people are in bondage to sin because they're bored stiff with God. People are bored with God. And and that's our fault as pastors. That is our fault. Listen, pastors, this is... Pastors themselves are bored stiff with God. Look look around the evangelical landscape. You'll see a lot of bored pastors. They are bored. They 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 are tired of church. They are tired of this. It's just mechanical. It's come in. And so they got to find something to do to make them excited because Jesus isn't exciting for them anymore. And so what happens is, what do they do? They preach cheap, superficial, shallow, cutesy sermons mixed with all kinds of jokes and stories just to try to excite the people about something. And they they themselves are not excited about Jesus, so they resort to cheap sermons. If Jesus is really great, then why are you preaching a shallow sermon? Preach the perfections of God. Give people a great view of who God is. I mean, what has happened to us? May God help pastors to preach and and to offer their people a biblical alternative to, to pleasure. Like Psalm 1611, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When's the last time you heard someone unpack that? See, what happens is when churches don't hear their pastors speak the same truth that Paul did... And if they don't sense the same type of enthusiasm that Paul had in us, then they'll just go home and they'll turn on whatever they can to dull their pain or they'll try to numb their aching heart with some kind of empty narcotic. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Oh, friends, fix the focus of your faith on God, on his uncreated beauty, on his indescribable Splendor on his glorious majesty, majesty, his immeasurable, ultimately incomprehensible magnificence. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so that I can gaze, gaze, gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Praise God. Friends, how do you get that kind of passion for God? It's just it's it's simple in one sense. It's you just do what the text says. You you get into the house of the Lord. Number one, you get to church. You get into the house of the Lord, and once you get there, you gaze and you gaze and you gaze upon His beauty until you're so full of God that you practically have to ask Him to stop filling you because you are overflowing with passion and excitement for this God. When's the last time that happened to you? you? This is the thing. You can have that. You can have that. 
You can get with God so regularly and so consistently that you feel like you're going to pop because he's so great to you. Oh, how I love those moments. They don't happen enough, but I want them. And, friends, we have to seek out the presence of God with a hungry heart and an open Bible. What's the, when's the last time that you sat down with an open Bible, with an open word, and you studied the superior beauty of God? Have you immersed yourself in his attributes, in the depth of his glory? How often do you meditate and talk with friends about the infinite complexity of God's mind and personality? When was the last time that you broke out into spontaneous praise and worship over God's attributes of power and sovereignty and kindness and mercy on your behalf? When was the last time that you really went in depth on the majesty of Jesus, his humility, his authority, his healing power, his kindness, his tenderness, his goodness, the compassion that made him cry and weep. How often do you explore with one another the incomparable benefits of forgiveness and adoption and redemption and justification and sanctification? When's the last time that you prayed and and focused specifically on the anointing of the Holy Spirit over your life and over your work and over your marriage and over your ministry or had friends come over not to watch Dancing with the Stars, not to watch Monday Night Football, but specifically to talk about the indwelling and the sin-killing power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the point is this. The vice grip that sin has on our heart and soul can only be snapped by a higher pleasure in the things of God. You you can only conquer the destructive, soul-withering nature of sin through the blazing fire of the Holy Spirit, anointed pursuit of the beauty of God. It's when you get into the presence of God and you see His beauty that the power of sin is snapped because it looks cheap like it is. And for the first time, you're able to see that is cheap pleasure, and I don't want it anymore. Drugs is cheap. Alcohol is cheap. It's all cheap. It's just, it's just filth. And none of it fills. And none of it satisfies. But when you look at the beauty of God, you say, yes, that's what I want. And you become transformed. Friends, look, look, listen, if we don't do that, that's why we have uh, drug recovery programs. And that's why we have all kinds of sin and the consequences of sin is because we have gone after cheap pleasure for too long. We have got to learn how to find our pleasure in God. What's the alternative? If we don't find it in God, what are we going to do? Are we going to drown in a sea of triviality and pettiness and banality and silliness? Are we going to let our lives be intellectually and emotionally disconnected from the infinite soul-staggering beauty of God? Are we going to try to find it in television and books and music and talk radio and movies and superficial social gatherings that, that, that go nowhere? How, how can we, are we going to drown in a kiddie pool of the world when an ocean of God's beauty awaits us? I don't want the kiddie pool. Then, friends, we have to intellectually and emotionally and spiritually get focused because the human heart was meant to be staggered by God. If you're not staggered tonight, 
That's a problem with your heart. We are supposed to be staggered. When did God become unstaggering? Why are we not staggered? He's God. He spoke the world into existence. We should be so staggered by God. We were made for that. Not not to be titillated with the buzz of cheap pleasures and thrills. Neil Postman was right when he said we are amusing ourselves to death. We are amusing ourselves to death. Friends, turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off and get into the presence of God. Immerse yourself in God's word until you become so saturated, saturated to the bone with the same truths that caused Paul to explode in Romans chapter 8. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor or who has ever given to him that it might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. Amen. That's what happens when you when you dwell in the house of the Lord and you meditate on his beauty. You become enamored with God. You experience transformation. It's it's a taste of heaven. That's the thing. It's a taste of heaven. It's preface to heaven. We're here in Owensboro, but next stop is heaven. And when we get there, we're going to we're going to be free from all this sin. But here's the thing. We are supposed to live now in in a way that models how we're going to live then. So do you want a foretaste of heaven? Then let's get into the presence of God now. You begin to enjoy God. You, your joy increases. The blessedness of the beauty of God will be progressive for you. It will be incremental and it will be expansive. This is what happens as you regularly get into the presence of God. Your desire for God will grow and it will expand. And you'll have even more capacity to love and enjoy God because it will grow all along. I've experienced this a number of times. It's, it's um, getting into God's presence and pressing in and pressing in. It, it becomes like a, the surging, swelling waves of a river at flood, flood stage. It's that with each passing moment, as you, you, really, you really press into the presence of God through prayer, there will be an increase in the level of its water. And as the rain of revelation from God's word and insight from God and discovery continues to fall, so the water level of love and joy and happiness just rises higher and higher. And when we get to heaven, listen, it will, be, it will continue to rise higher and higher and higher through the endless ages of eternity and never stop or in the slightest way lessen. Praise God. You will be eager to study the perfections of God. You'll be more eager because your heart will have expanded and be ready to take in more of the beauty and perfections of God. Are you eager to get into the presence of God? Do you feel eager to get into his presence? Then that leaves us with our closing question, and it's this. When should I start looking for him? When should I start looking for him? Now? Right now? Right now? And for the rest of your life, David says his desire was to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. This is especially true um, if you're a non-Christian who has never experienced communion with God. See, you don't know what it means, but you need to seek the Lord to find out. Here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. And I want to tell you tonight, if you're not a Christian, he is here tonight. He is near. He is near to you tonight. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before, listen, before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no more pleasure in them. You know what that means? That means, that means while the offer's on the table, while you're still a young man or a young woman, find him. See, because you're going to get old someday and you're not going to care. And, 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 and I want to, and I want to encourage you if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that you find him, that you do it tonight. Seek the Lord now. Let me give you five, five quick reasons why. Listen, seek the Lord now because here's, here's a simple reason. Seek the Lord now because he commands it. And divine commands are not to be disputed, but to, our be, to be obeyed. That's what he says, Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Friends, it's as simple as this. God commands you to seek him. Do you need any other incentive? <laughs> Do we need any other incentive? Then let us be quick to obey. Number two, seek the Lord now because you have an opportunity to seek him now. And God promises that those who seek him early will find him. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. Listen, I love those who love me. And those who seek me early will find me. Today is the day of salvation. Number three, seek the Lord now because you've not, begin, you've not begun to live until you have life in Christ. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and all things have become new. Number four, seek the Lord now because if you live a long time, if you become an old man or an old woman, you'll be glad you did. <laughs> Listen, Psalm 71, for, for you, O Lord, are my hope. Our senior saints in here can can confess the truthfulness of this listen for you O lord are my hope my trust O lord from my youth oh god from my youth you taught me and i still proclaim your wondrous deeds even to old age and gray hairs isn't that great you, and you know this right before polycarp polycarp was a, a disciple of john john the apostle listen Right before Polycarp was martyred for his faith, he was asked to deny Jesus. Do you know what he said? Eighty-six years have I now served Christ, and he has never done me the least wrong. How then will I blaspheme my King and my Savior? You'll be glad you did if you seek him now. Number five, the last one. Seek the Lord now, because the older you get the less likely it will be that you will ever seek him. It's possible to repent late in life. It is possible. But I'll tell you this, late conversions rarely happen. Millions are now in hell who told themselves that they would get right with God later on. And later on never happened. Death happened. 
And that's why Solomon said, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before, before the evil days come and the years draw near which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And the desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. That desire will fail. It, listen, if you have that desire, do it tonight. I just read about a man who was warned on his deathbed to repent and to trust in Christ. And you know what he said? Uh, to his friends, his answer was that he would not repent because if somehow he recovered from his sickness, he was afraid that his friends would mock him for believing, believing in Christ. But as he grew sicker, his friends begged him again and again, and he said in response to them, finally, right before he breathed his last, he said, it's too late. I'm condemned already. You know what happened? Probably God hardened his heart, and he didn't even care. And he knew it, and it was too late. Friends, seek him now. Do it tonight. And look, we'll be available afterwards. We want to talk to you about that. If you need to seek God, we'll stay here all night. We want to help you find God. We'll talk. And to my sweet Christian friends, here's my conclusion. What's the conclusion to the matter of this message? It's this. David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord Here's your application. Do this. Make David's one thing your one thing. Make it your one thing. And do it all the days of your life. David's statement is comprehensive. And the application of it is clear. Our desire for communion with God, it cannot be limited to the weekly gathering of the church. This is not a Sunday desire. This is not a... This is not a week-by-week desire. This is a lifelong desire and passion. So get into the presence of God day after day after day after day until you die. And help each other do that. And say with David, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of Lord, being challenged by your word. Lord, we confess that we are not those people as we should be. Oh God, we beg you that that hunger would be transferred into, into behavioral change by your sovereign spirit. In Jesus' name.